You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined today, as always, by my lovely co-host and our guest for the episode. I don't know, maybe I should have done those separately, pretend like you were two different people, but uh, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly, how are you doing today? Hey, Robert, I am doing awesome. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little stormy outside. I'm actually, I think, under a tornado watch. So we'll sign to, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. But uh, if you hear some yeah. rumbling or rumbling in the background, maybe that's, you know, but it's okay. I'm inside nice and safe. We're all good. And uh, yeah, excited to, to be here to talk with you uh, about something that I know we both love, uh, which is the soul of the helper. Aww, thank you. Well, I'm excited to get to talk with you about it too. And I'm I'm super honored to to get to be chatting with you as always, but then excited to kind of celebrate, you know, this um this first anniversary of this book and being on yeah. the other side of it. So yeah. 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 So for for our listeners that don't know, or maybe even the ones that do, right? So uh, a recap just so that we uh, if we reference things, we all understand maybe where we're coming from, right? So your book, The Soul of the Helper, Seven Stages to Seeing the Sacred Within Yourself So You Can See It in Others, released in February of 2022, which is why we're doing a one-year kind of celebration anniversary mm-hmm. episode now. We yep. we first had you on the show to talk about it kind of as a guest, and we released that episode. That was episode 143 that we released that episode in December of 2021. So you know, a little bit yeah. before, and uh-huh. then as an endorser of the book and as just a friend, I read it. You know, I got to co- see a couple different versions and, and things and whatnot, right? But yes, uh, you did. Read it Lots of versions of well this. before yep. that uh, through through a couple iterations. So I'll say, yes. you know, from my from my perspective, getting to reflect on it one year later after the the official launch is. There's this added layer of coolness, I think, for me of even when it launched, I felt this, right? That like, hey, it's really cool to have obviously celebrate you as a friend, like launching this this great book and, and all of that, but also just having been alongside you for a lot of that like journey yeah. iterations yeah. and, you know, different, um, I don't know, the finagling of it, right? Like to, to make sure yeah. like, hey, this is what it is. And so I think it's been really cool as a friend uh, to watch all of that and then watch it launch and to see other people celebrating it, people that we know and then people that we don't know. And, you know, just to see it ripple out, like I think has been really cool for me. But I'm curious for you, obviously, who you're much closer to it than I am and, and you put a lot more time and effort and all that, obviously. How has the last year been for you having put in all of that work and effort and then kind of going, fly little bird, you know? <laughs> Oh, well, first I, oh my gosh. Well, I, I just, I love how you named all the ways that you have been connected and part of this, this book and it's becoming for so long. Like, I mean, and we, we know and have learned a lot of the arc of the whole book writing and publishing process, you know, from walking alongside so many authors on this show and what that has been like for them. But then you just have been such a generous um, 
friend and source of support and encourager throughout the whole process. I remember like, you know, years before it came out, you know, you kind of knew I was working on this. And so, um, and it seen early scrappy drafts of it and the proposal and all that. So I am just, it is a gift to um, have had you as a friend kind of walk alongside me through this whole process and yeah. to be on the, you know, the other side after a year of it. Yeah. Well, it was an honor. And I'll say uh, I saved all those early drafts and I'll be releasing them oh, immediately no. uh, unless you pay. I'm just kidding. Um, no, you know, I, and no. when I recapped all that, it wasn't to like insert myself into any of that story or anything no. because obviously I, yeah. you know, I'm not trying to take any credit. I just think it's cool to to get to witness like and and emphasize what a process it's been and how cool that it has, has been to to watch that development and then you know, to have kind of that depth of like appreciation for getting even to, to hear. Right. So, um, yeah. Thank Does it you. feel weird to, especially I think maybe with a first book, because I know a lot of people, uh, obviously I haven't written a book, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of things like creative aspects, you know, where your first one kind of feels like, okay, this is, I've been working my whole life towards this thing almost, right? Like you're putting everything into it. Aww. So I don't know. I'm just curious because so much of your work goes into it, the idea of like, oh, well, now I kind of did that and released it. Is that does that feel a little bit strange to you in terms of like, if I wrote a second book, it would be I would it would be all kind of new stuff. It wouldn't be kind of the stuff that's been mm-hmm. marinating in you mm-hmm. for a really long time, maybe partially. But I don't know. Just it seems yeah. like it might be a little bit of a strange, you know, a strange sensation almost. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is a a strange experience and process, I think, being on the other side and especially with it being, um, you know, I've got a a data point of one book to feel like being on the other side of it, whereas I know authors who have many more, their experiences may be very different, but, um, but I think it's the it's the steep learning curves that I have had to navigate and that I imagine every author has to navigate as they are going through the process of writing a book and synthesizing the things that they want to say and communicating it in a way that is relatable to the audience that they're writing for and the stories that they pick throughout that process. I mean, being on the other side of that has been really interesting, especially because it, I felt like writing this book was such an intimate process and experience. I, I'm pretty public in talking about how um, I worked on this book every morning, early, early in the morning, like while I would watch the sunrise and my family would be sleeping. I spent the morning, you know, doing centering prayer before I would write the book. And there is a deep intimacy of that daily Whoa. process that yeah. shaped me in really big ways. And so being on the other side of it, there are like a lot of layers. It's not just like, okay, check mark, it's done, like a to-do list item. There's a, a process of grieving and letting go of control of that book and mm-hmm. um, and what I wrote in it and trusting yeah. that the things that my editor and I um, landed on in terms of what we wanted to keep or let go of, like trusting that the things that needed to be in there are in there. Um, there's a leaning into the vulnerability of hope tied to this process where I certainly, oh my gosh, I so hope that 
that the people who read this book experience some of that tenderness that I experienced while writing it um, and that it shapes people. I know that every person is different. And so it's going to shape people in different ways based on who they are bringing of themselves to the book. But I still hope that it it shapes them in similar ways to the ways that it shaped me while writing the book. Um, yeah. And then I would say too that that there's also there is this this there there's just I don't know I don't even know that I have the right word I'm so sorry I'm 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 no that's all right for a moment yeah there's also I can send a, you a feelings wheel there are lots of I know right I have to pull that up no but there is a piece to it in this recognition of you know doing what is mine to do and trusting it's enough surrendering to you know, whatever it is that um, it will offer to others while also knowing like, I don't have control of that at this point. Mm. Um, yeah. There's the human side of it where of course my ego, when folks say really nice things, there's there's this dance between, oh my gosh, I am so humbled and honored to hear you say that, that it, that it served you in that way. And that is true. And I'm certainly human. And there's a part of me that's like, that feels really good um, to hear that it serves you. Maybe that's not as yeah. much ego in a in right. a negative way, but like just a naming of like, oh, that does feel good that it's serving other people. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm sure ego's in there too. But all that to say, like it's it's been a a sweet and tender and hope filled and peaceful. And and also wild ride because there's a lot of learning <laughs> curves that you don't know what you don't know. And so yeah. like to think through like what is it like to talk to, you know, several uh podcast hosts in a row? I mean, when you and I talk with guests, right? It's different Fashion, because right? it's like we have different guests, but we are kind of that backbone in terms of um being hosts. But when right. you flip it around and it's you know, you are the the guests across all of these different um, podcasts. That's so different. So yeah. anyways, I don't know. It's just been wild and exciting yeah. and fun and humbling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did just, I mean, hey, thank you for, for sharing all that and unpacking all that. I mean, I love hearing that. And again, just uh, having been your friend over the last year, I, I know that all of that is true. And, and that's, you know, you've described a lot of that along the way as well, right? But I will yes, say, you've been my uh, friend for much longer than a year, though. Please stand yourself well, right, a right, little right. more. <laughs> no, yeah, I just yeah. mean uh, having uh, having been I a friend know. during yes. that time. Yes, right? yes, yes. Um, but I did. I jumped out of order. We have you know some questions sketched out, and so uh, my apologies. I was just you know no, no, kind no. of you're, talking. You're so, doing great. Um, yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Look, that feels good. You know. Um, Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so what we wanted to do to day was obviously reflect a little bit um celebrate you know the the year anniversary and give a give a chance for you to answer some q a some common questions that you've gotten along the way so that folks who uh, listen who haven't come to an event or something like that especially you know events maybe have been weird over the last mm -hmm. handful of years and whatnot right could, oh yeah uh, yeah have a chance to to hear some of that right and i know we got some questions from social media and stuff as well right so some questions that I know you've gotten and that folks probably are, are wondering, right? One, and 
I will again. I'll I'll harken back to episode one forty three that that we yeah. I interviewed you about the book, right? Because I know some of this you went into maybe more depth there, um, uh-huh. because that was you know, and maybe be curious to listen to both. Maybe if anybody wants to, I'll sign this as homework. Yes. Listen to both and see how things have changed. But <laughs> right, so obviously one kind of base question, right, is like why why was it important for you to write this, and and then how how your research focus relates to it and things like that. Because obviously you have been in academia and research for a long time, which doesn't inherently translate maybe to okay, here's a book for public consumption, right? Like yeah. that's a those are very different yeah. writing styles and spaces, yeah. right? So I don't know, I'm curious how those relate and why it felt important for you to to write it in kind of the the general audience way that you did. Yeah. No, that's I really appreciate that. Um the, the question, but also some of the nods of what you were just saying around, you know, academia doesn't inherently tend to be like, yes, let's translate this for wider audiences, that the reward is focused on writing research articles that get published in academic peer-reviewed journals, which yeah. absolutely, like those need to be done so that we have that peer review component. And, you know, my neighbors aren't going to be reading like academic journals, they're going to be reading the trade books instead. So, what your neighbors um, don't subscribe to, you know, <laughs> quantitative research digest or whatever. That's a, I know they're not. I know it's usually like the Journal of Social Worker, but you know, no, 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 no. I'm sure actually you probably just named one, but yeah, um, yeah, no, Trademark, they, if not, no, my neighbors are not. Try and make that yeah, that's yeah. right. There you go. Um, no, 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 no. So. Yeah, this, I mean, for me as a social worker and the recognition of how important it is to make um, information and resources as accessible as possible, that was a big drive, I think, for me in terms of wanting to write the book. And um, it ties in, too, with my heart behind being on this podcast and doing this podcast and trying to make good information accessible for wider audiences who could actually do something with that information. Yeah. Yeah. So, but this research, you know, that you were just kind of alluding to, the research is generally focused on this intersection between spirituality and mental health. It was originally done with mental health care providers, but then as I write about in the book, um, I really began to recognize that this research is not just for mental health care providers, but it, it really is for everyday helpers, whether that's um, right. parents or partners, teachers, um, mental health care providers, educators, um, volunteers, et cetera, uh, faith leaders, you know, just a wide group of helpers. And so realizing that this research really is for these everyday helpers and the fact that they're not going to be reading um, those research articles and that oh. those research articles, like they're not. They're not really for them, right? Like they, right. they tend yeah. to be more for academics. It, it, that's really where I got to a point at which I could no longer not write this book because I was really bumping up against oh. those nudges of this is the next step in the research process. This is the next layer of what needs to be done, and it and it has got to get this good research out to everyday helpers. And then the other piece that I would say kind of why it was important for me to write is that, you know, as a 
quantitative researcher, which is, you know, I do a lot of numbers type research. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I realized in this process that there's a certain point at which that research can take us so far. And then we, we may need to switch to another type of methodology uh, or oh. another type of approach to the research. And for me, this, this, this book um, has more of what's called an autoethnography approach where I kind of set down the shield of research and I kind of, instead of, you know, holding up the shield and pointing to it and saying like, but this is what the data says. This is what the data says. Look at what, you know, our research findings have said. I, I kind of needed to set it down and I needed to write this book as it relates to my own journey at this intersection of faith and mental health. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I had to move into it and humbly wrestle with it and and be more transparent um, and live into this research, which is kind of yeah. you know where part two of the book kind of evolved from. But I'll pause there. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's a lot of no, what I mean, led I, into it. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, I think that's a, a perfect segue, right, of of the idea of setting down some of the research, obviously that informing you and you going, okay, I have kind right. of a picture here of what's happening. But then yes. that bridge is what is missing sometimes, right? I, I was going to say oftentimes, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't want to mm -hmm. speak to whatever. But I think for some folks who go, okay, well, here's the statistic, here's what's happening, right? These paint a picture. And then a lot of folks maybe hear that and go, okay, well, what is that? Okay, so what? Right, like, what do we do with yep. any of that? Yep. That's, that's right. helpful to know, obviously. But then that translation piece, right? So there's there's a couple questions in here about kind of different audiences, right? And I know uh, mm -hmm. the idea of helper being more broad than just uh, clinical mental health professionals or or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Can you talk through uh, what, how, how, and I guess I should have started with like maybe, you know, a brief overview of, of the book and, and what you're writing about here. But obviously the idea of the seven stages, seeing the sacred within ourselves, and we can see it in other people, right? How does that translate to different audiences? In particular, I'm seeing, you know, a, a question that I know you've gotten a couple of times about kids and, and parents, mm -hmm, and that's something mm -hmm. that obviously you're intimately familiar with, being a parent. And okay. I'm not, so I guess maybe in the process of, of doing a, a, a quick snapshot overview, if you're fine doing that, and then maybe what does that mean to different types of people, right? Like, how is that applicable, right? Like, what does that make sense, or is that too big? Yes, of a question? absolutely. Okay. No, 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 no. That's perfect. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, I'm happy to give kind of a brief overview of the book, and then I'll talk about some different groups, um, including the nod to kids that you were just alluding to. So, so the way that the book is structured, the first part of the book really dives into um, some of the research on religion and spirituality as some of the research on mental health and how these are done and how these two areas of our lives are connected. Like work that um, myself and my colleagues have done, but there are a lot of other incredible scholars who have done such good work in these two areas of our lives. And I really tried to uh, elevate their, their research and write about it in a way that, again, like my neighbor could read and understand and integrate within her life. There's also some story um, toward the beginning of the book because I, I want to make it clear kind of the why behind the book and um, and how I am bringing myself to this book in this intersection. Um, and so there's there's some of that. 
But then from that, the second part of the book uh, really gets into these seven stages that you were just alluding to of um, along this journey of seeking the sacred. And those seven stages, I'll, I'll briefly kind of just name them and then talk about how they're connected. So the seven stages are um, speed, slow, steady, still, see, shift, and serve. And the way in which these stages um, kind of bridge together is, and again, it builds on this research on spirituality and mental health. Um, these seven stages invite us to wake up to the speed at which we are operating through life. Uh, many of us, that's go, go, go at a very high speed pace um, and begin to wake up and see kind of that that way of being. Um, and then we are invited to begin slowing down, um, which can be difficult for us for a lot of reasons. So we need to identify some steadying structures that support us in that slower pace so that we can actually be still, um, which again, being still is incredibly difficult for us. We operate in a culture that um, has a current that that we're just swimming in that is so fast-paced that it is hard to be still. But we need to be still in order to see the sacred within ourselves. Um, and then from that place of seeing our inherent worth, um, the sacred within us, the image of God within us, we are then invited to shift with compassion toward ourselves and those around us um, from this place of recognizing our belovedness and then serve from that place of belovedness so that we are not hustling for our worth. We're not seeking those accolades and you know layers of affection or, or power or control, but we're really serving with this grounded um, discernment of what is ours to do to serve because we already know we're beloved. So that's sort of how those stages are um, connected. And you know certainly when I talk with folks about those stages, a lot of folks in the audience I will see their heads nodding around the high this speed pace of life. <laughs> I hear you chuckling, my friend. Um, uh -huh. And I, I see them, you know, really getting that sense of like, yep, I, it's, it's, yeah, it's, this is like the culture that we're living in. Um, and, and then I'll, you know, and then they'll affirm that sense of it being hard to slow down and be still and, and we'll wrestle through questions related to that. Um, but then it seems like these seven stages offer a framework by which folks are like, oh, okay. So it's not linear. It's not like we, it's not like a checkmark list through these stages, but there is this sense of um, inner knowing of, okay, yes, I, I know that there have been times in my life we're really in that speed stage. I, there have been times in my life where I've really needed to intentionally build those steadying structures to allow me to slow down and be still. Or maybe, yeah, I really remember times in my life in which I could see and connect with the image of God within me. Um, and that positioned me to love my neighbor as myself much more 
holy and in like holy, like W-H-O-L-L-Y, um, holy and intentionally and um, and in a much more connected way, if that makes sense. So, and then, you know, I, yeah. I, yeah, so I, but I certainly hear some questions about different groups and you mentioned about kids. I heard quite a bit from folks about like, well, how do I teach this to my kids? Um, that comes up in a lot right. of moments when I talk. And one of the things that I return to when I get that question is um, one of the first things that I nod to is um, the need for us to model this for our kids um, and to really make sure that, you know, yeah. bef- I guess we want to turn to think about how do we help our kiddos with this? But again, kind of going back to the spirit of these stages, like how are we modeling these ourselves so that our kids can see us living into these stages? And um, a couple of practices yeah. I, t- I talk about, I heard that slower, yeah, too. I don't know if that resonated for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's part of what I, when I was reading that and, and throwing that question out, I think in my brain, I even thought, okay, doing it for myself seems at the question of like, oh, well, how do we teach this to our kids partially in when I hear that and think about me asking that, right? I'm not ascribing meaning to anybody else. But if if I were to ask that, I, I do think there's a component of like, okay, I could do this for myself, but also that seems really hard. How do I, is there more or is there like an alternate way to teach my kids in addition to me trying to do it, right? Like, I don't, you know, just yes. the, the same way that when yes. I try to teach, teach my kids to take deep breaths, right? But then I have to like really work and really, really That's work it. myself to like when I'm getting frustrated, yeah. take deep breaths, right? Like, but it seems, That's I don't it. know, those two things, the tension there, right? So uh, maybe that was, you know, just acknowledging and, and uh, yeah. you know, having some internal chuckling there. Yeah, no, I love it. I so appreciate that transparency. And I love the analogy with the deep breath. Um, I mean, a couple of things that I've shared with folks is, you know, my my kiddos will see me practicing centering prayer, which I write about this practice in the book. Um, and they will see me practice it at times, which I think helps them to, again, see that sense of integrity where like I am practicing well, the things that I'm trying to model and and teach them um, but that's one and sometimes Oliver especially will like come down and sit next to me and he'll like um he'll you know he'll for like two minutes he'll sit there with me and then he's off doing right. whatever else but that's fine and then the other yeah. thing that I do with my kiddos is um I practice a, a version of the examen with them at night where oh. you would think about a time that um, you go through a consolation or a desolation, like a time you felt close with God or a time you felt further away. And with their age, I just ask them, you know, what's a time that you felt close to God today? And well, that has been a practice that has been something that our family has done for the last, I think, two and a half or three years now. And that's one way, I think, to to kind of build in some of these rhythms of contemplation and paying attention and slowing down and reflecting things like that yeah i love that what about other audiences right because i know uh, obviously again helper uh-huh. being a, a broad term and you in doing this show and all the work that you do i mean you literally a, a, a 
professor of social work, right? So the idea of social workers or mental health professionals or even faith leaders, right? I mean, how does this relate to maybe we'll we'll break those apart, right? To make it not too broad, not too broad, but mental health professionals, uh, their various like code of ethics or how they interact with their clients, right? Like, what would mm-hmm. you say to, to that audience? Besides, I was like, go get the book, but like, right, you know, kind of in this moment. Yeah, yeah. For mental health professionals specifically, I would say, you know, that's where the bulk of my research has been. Um, And so within that area, I would encourage mental health care providers to be really spending time tending to their own inner landscape at this intersection of spirituality and mental health to really, really see the value of spending some time uh, to the, whatever degree of time you have, but to see it as part of your ethical call, because what we find in the research is that mental health care providers who are more deeply motivated to live out their faith tend to integrate their client's faith more frequently and to have yeah. pos- more positive views about it. And so what's happening within the provider is impacting what they do with their clients. And so yeah. for that reason, yeah, I would really nudge mental health care providers to find ways to tend to their inner landscape at this intersection, um, do some reflective exercise. I mean, there's tons in the book that I could point yeah. to, but, you know. Yeah. Um, and when you say right there, when you say like yeah. the clinicians' attitudes and, and whatnot towards their own faith and uh-huh. spirituality, that's kind of across, that's, no, that's not like a specific, you know, like that that's like right. cross faith tradition right. yeah no yeah. so okay. so yeah that's the so phrase I was per- for. yeah 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 so yeah no across faith traditions or religious affiliations the providers who were more deeply motivated to live out their faith had more positive views and more frequently integrated their clients faith and that matters cool. because we have research that shows that when you integrate clients faith whatever the client believes in into mental health treatment the client tends to get better faster and they have more oh. positive outcomes for a longer period of time. So we've got to be paying yeah. attention to this area of clients' lives with deep humility and groundedness. Yeah. And for for more, uh, if you want to hear like a bunch about that, I'll do like a uh, deep throwback to episode oh my th- gosh. 31 <laughs> before you became a co-host even. Uh, oh. Way back, uh, episode 31, where we I kind of, that was the first time that we had interacted a lot and uh, kind of posed the question, yes. like, does it matter, the faith of, of the clinician, right? So uh, I'll just, you know, I'll just toss a, an, a way throwback to- I love it. You know, oh, I love it. Way, yeah. yeah. Multiple lifetimes ago, maybe, by now. <laughs> yeah. So what about faith? Uh, faith leaders and when i when i say that that phrase i don't just mean like that as the vocation you know but people who are leaders within faith communities whether that is their job you know various you know pastor youth pastor whatever role or small group leader or i'm a volunteer or i'm just someone who you know i i hang out with my kids friends like you know what i mean yeah so how does it translate to that group or what yeah i mean what would you uh you know, if they said, "Okay, I'm, I read the book. I'm trying. I'm trying to incorporate some of this, but you know, what's the the day to day like? Are the with the practices oh, yeah. that you recommend yeah, be yeah, yeah. kind of similar, or yeah, yeah, I, yes, it would be similar. Um, I mean, I think that that again, tuning into our own inner landscape, even for mental health care providers or for um, faith theaters, excuse me, 
for these faith leaders to be tuning in to their own landscape at this intersection with regards to their own spirituality and their own mental health, I think is really important. Uh, one of the the statistics that I talk about in this book is, you know, even though uh, we know that about one in five are currently struggling with a mental health condition, we do have research that shows over the course of our lifetime, it's actually going to be over 80% of us who meet mm. criteria for a diagnosable mental illness. So that includes yeah. our faith leaders. And, and I know that our faith leaders have been through a whole lot over the last few years too. So I, I would yeah. say that, you know, that, and, and I know that there are so many competing demands within their roles, so many things that are, that would tempt them to hurry up and go fast and do a whole bunch of things and contribute to that high speed pace of life. Um, and this is, I think what's really important in this book for faith leaders is again, for them to slow down and to do some of their own inner work at this intersection um, so that they can really discern how to best meet the needs of their congregation members or their small group or whatever way that they are serving when it comes to faith. I mean, spiritual direction, yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah. But that, that slowing down is really important so that they can connect with um, the sacred within themselves. Because honestly, Robert, like I think this was one of the the hardest things about the book is the recognition that I'm afraid that if we don't see it within ourselves, Boom. what we see within others is just a distorted reflection of yeah. the image of God that we see within ourselves. So there is yeah. an urgency, I think, to do this work, especially yeah. for faith leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know uh, we were keeping this one a little bit shorter, and we're we're bumping against yeah. some time here, right? Um, tornadoes and all, but it's yes. calm outside. By the way, it's fine. Um, but uh, oh, I'll say, good. I'm glad I think to hear that. I'm gonna. Uh, what we'll do is because I know there's an excerpt that I think I was hoping to read and, and whatnot. So um, I'm gonna drop that audio in. We can record that separately. I, I'll drop that in so our listeners get to hear that from you. Um, but I do want to thank you, obviously, for the book and all the work that it, that went into it and just for the, the past year and obviously for for sitting down and answering a couple Q&A questions uh, today with us, um, with me and and our audience, right? And for anyone who hasn't gotten the book and you're kind of going, what, what are you talking about, right? Please go get it. I promise it's worth it. Uh, I It's fantastic. Uh, I I don't know. I can't. There's all the good things I have to say about it. You can hear across all the times we've talked about this book and as an endorser and all that, right? So uh, I can't recommend yeah. it uh, enough. But um, thank you, Holly, for, for being here. Uh, and uh, do you have any closing thoughts as we you know, kind of close out reflecting a, a year of the soul of the helper? Yeah. Well, Robert, first of all, thank you for your friendship and generosity and support over the last several years and all the ways that you've supported me through the process of writing the book and even supporting me in this way I hear out and celebrating the book. Like I so, so appreciate that. Your endorsement meant the world to me. And in fact, every time I sign the book, your endorsement is the one that I see right next to the page that I sign it on. Oh. Um, so I just- Are you gonna say I signed I, right over your endorsement so no. that nobody has, yeah. <laughs> no, stop. No, I just, it just means so much to me. I mean, you are a gift um, in our world and in my life. And 
I am so thankful for the chance to celebrate this book at the one-year anniversary point. I'm so honored by this opportunity and chance to um, read a little bit of The Soul of the Helper to our listeners in honor of the celebration of its first anniversary of being out in the world. The excerpt that I have decided to read um, is it, it, it's in chapter seven, which is entitled Still. Um, and just to set the stage briefly, I talk a little bit at the beginning about um, the ways in which I, um, well, A, some of the layers of my experience growing up and some of the difficulties tied to that, but also what a gift it was for me to grow up in upstate New York and more specifically in close proximity to Lake Ontario. Um, so much so that, in fact, it was in my backyard that I could look out and see the lake. And there were a lot of layers to that that I write about that really supported me through um, many years of turbulence that that I allude to in this chapter um, and throughout the book. And so with that, um, I'm going to invite you, dear listener, to just find a comfortable um, way of sitting or being in this moment. Um, invite you to take a couple of deep breaths. And I um, am going to invite you to just ground yourself in this moment as I read this portion of the book to you. In the most difficult times of my youth, I'd sit in a backyard and look over the lake. There, I found myself distracted from my physical, psychological, and emotional wounds. I watched for patterns in the waves, contemplatively following the caps until they broke on the shore. If I couldn't go outside, I sat at the edge of my bed and cranked the screenless windows open. I listened to the waves and birds, smelled the lake air, and noticed the water surface. When it was calm and the lake looked like glass, I felt calm. When the water was rough and the lake resembled my internal emotional state, I felt validated. I found a sense of safety and security in this lake, which offered me a sanctuary to identify and regulate my many emotions as someone who feels emotions deeply especially in the midst of facing so many layers of pain. I often think of the lake and its parallels with life. When the wind whipped the waves up or when the lake turned over in the fall, I couldn't see past the surface. It was too choppy or muddy. But on many summer mornings, when the lake was as smooth as glass with a layer of haze on the water, I took our canoe to paddle out in solitude and find peace and stillness within myself as I embrace the peace and stillness around me. In that peace, I looked over the side of the canoe and saw the bottom of the lake, even far offshore. I saw the rocks at the bottom, some aquatic plants waving, a school of minnows darting, and the sun's light dancing on the bottom of the lake. In the stillness, I could see. I don't live with a lake in my backyard anymore, but I still respond to bodies of water in the same way as when I was young, and I still see the parallel to my own inner space. 
In stillness, I can see what's happening below the surface. In stillness, I can rest and let things be without needing to control them. In stillness, I can reflect and see myself. In stillness, I can receive peace and ultimately share the gift of that peace with others. On the other hand, when I'm moving too fast, whether in a canoe or in my life, and I look over the edge to the water, I cannot see into the deep. The ripples and waves caused by my movement prevent me from seeing what's below. When we aren't still, we can't really examine much past the distorted surface. When we aren't still, we often make assumptions and decisions based on the distorted reflection of ourselves. When we aren't still, we misinterpret or completely miss the accurate and authentic reality of what's inside. We need stillness to truly examine our lives, but being still is hard for many of us. How do we do it? Chapter 6 offer tangible practices to help create the structures and boundaries we need to steady our balance from slowing down. This chapter offers movements within those structures and boundaries to usher us toward inner stillness. But as we move into the work of stillness, understand there is an ebb and flow between each of the stages of seeking the sacred. We're always moving in and out of the stages, always refining our speed, shoring up our steadying structures, and practicing stillness along with the other stages. Practices that help us be with stillness. Learning to be still is hard work, especially if you've never really practiced it. Many of us give into the current around us, which moves at a pace far too fast for our souls. We've contributed to that current by hurrying to keep up with it, often for as long as we can remember. But at some point, if we want to see a deeper reality, we must become still. If we let it, stillness can become an act of resistance. Through stillness, we resist the systems that want us to operate in a speed that distracts us from contemplation and from what matters most, including our loved ones and our own souls. We resist the current that sweeps us away from the grounded, inherent belovedness God wants us to experience. To participate in this resistance that stillness offers, we need contemplative practices to guide us. We need to engage in what Catholic priest, professor, and theologian Henry Nouwen called the discipline of the heart. In his 1988 book, Letters to Mark, Nouwen examined the pace of modern life. He wrote, quote, It strikes me increasingly just how hard-pressed people are nowadays. It's as though they're tearing about from one emergency to another, never solitary, never still, never really free, but always busy about something that just can't wait. You get the impression that amid this frantic hurly-burly, we lose touch with life itself. We have the experience of being busy while nothing real seems to happen. The more agitated we are and the more compacted our lives become, the more difficult it is to keep a space where God can let something truly new really take place. The discipline of the heart helps us to let God into our hearts so that God can become known to us there in the deepest recesses of our own being. End quote. 
Now and saw that the pace of life often drags us away from seeing and knowing God. The discipline of the heart allows us to be still long enough to see and experience God in our lives. It's this stillness that calms the inner waves that react to everything. In doing so, we begin to see that we cannot push into every storm. We cannot help everyone in our lives with everything. We cannot take on every responsibility or opportunity. Stillness allows us to clearly see and discern how to respond with what's truly ours to do as helpers. This excerpt is one of my favorites within the book and one that I distinctly remember the process of writing one morning. And that, to be honest, even as the author, I find myself needing to return again and again to these reminders regarding how important stillness is within our lives as helpers and how critical it is so that we can actually see what is happening within us rather than the distorted reflection based on the waves and the different ways in which we go about our days, moving at such a quick pace from one thing to the next. It may be worth underscoring that that Henry Nouwen quote that I um, mentioned in that reading was from 1988. So you can imagine at this point how urgent and um, necessary those words are for us today. So my hope and prayer for each of you who are listening um, is that you do find moments in which you can cultivate stillness, in which you can lean into stillness as an act of resistance against the pace and the, the uh, processes and ways of being that take us away from our inherent belovedness. And my hope is that as you lean into this practice of stillness and reconnect with the image of God within yourself, within um, that divine spark within you, that you also invite others along that process of awakening to um, the image of God within them. Thanks y'all for your presence um, and your attention and just for who each of you are. Um, and I hope you each have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHPodcast at gmail.com.